So why I chose to write that story is because I didn't feel like I had an option. That I was suffering so much from postpartum anxiety, which at the time I didn't know there was a name for it. I thought I'm not depressed. I don't have postpartum depression. I would have these looping conversations in my head, and so that anxiety and that inability to kind of get past that, I just knew I had to write about it. It's the TMI Project podcast. A series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. I'm your host, Eva Tenuto, and this is Season 3, Stories for Choice. Before we get started, just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some content might be too much information for some listeners. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen. So if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, thank you. You can give what you can at tmiproject.org. Either way, we're so glad you're listening. Let's dive in. Next up is Elise, who shares my favorite kind of story, one filled with humor and poignancy. She shares some common experiences like picking the right baby name and telling her mother she's pregnant. She shares about postpartum anxiety something that is relatively common, but like most other mental health conditions, is still not talked about often. Elise also shares some not-so-common experiences, like almost dying during childbirth, telling her mother that her husband is transgender, and then having to explain to her how the baby was made. For years, the LGBTQIA community has been largely left out of the conversation about pregnancy and reproductive health care, but the barriers can be equally, if not more, profound. Many queer folks also face unique challenges on their journey to parenthood when typical sources of support, such as family members, health care providers, and child care institutions, are unfamiliar with or even unwelcoming toward non-traditional family structures like theirs. We hope as you listen to the wide array of storytellers and their unique perspectives, you start to broaden your understanding of the issue and how it impacts people differently. Stay tuned after Elise's story so you can hear from her today. I cry every time I go over the kingston Rhinecliff Bridge. I nervously confessed during my first doctor's appointment after giving birth. I'm unsure whether I should unbuckle my daughter from her car seat. Because what if the bridge breaks and we sink? I know I can get to her, but what if I can't undo the buckle and open the window in time to save her? Then what? This is postpartum anxiety. But for a long time, I didn't know it had a name. I don't identify as anxious. I'm pretty laid back. I mean, I dropped out of Brandeis and then Hampshire College. I walked across the country twice. I lived on the road for seven years. I'm good at adapting to my surroundings. This is all true. But it's also true that I'm different after my birthing experience. Actually, it sort of starts when trying to get pregnant. It takes five and a half years, which I'd like to think would make anyone anxious. 
People often tell me, relax, have a drink, forget about it, it will happen. Yeah, right. It's important to add here that my husband has no sperm. So uh, letting go and letting it happen isn't going to cut it. Finally, through a massive group effort with five acupuncturists, one hypnotist, one energy healer, three medical doctors, and three sperm donors, we managed to make a baby. In my second trimester, I realized I really have to tell my mother I'm pregnant, which first involves telling her that Cameron is transgendered, hence no sperm. We aren't sure what will happen. Will she disown us? Ignore it? We're really dreading this. So Cameron writes my mom a letter, and we hold our breath for the phone to ring. Ring! Lalise, who else knows? Does your father know? <laughs> yes, he's known the whole time. Does your sister know? Yep. Well, I'm not telling anyone. <laughs> Mom, are you going to keep talking to us? What? Well, of course. I mean, it was hard enough when you got married and he wasn't Jewish. <laughs> and it was harder even still dealing with the fact that he is, you know, short. <laughs> what is he? Five three? So this, this I can handle. <laughs> Tell me about being stunned. I invite my mom up to visit. We strategically do the bad news followed by good news. She comes to the house, and I make lunch. I ask her to get something in the oven. My mom opens the oven and takes out a hot dog roll. Lacey, what is this, a roll? One hot dog roll? For the both of us? Uh, this doesn't go with quiche. It's a bun, Mom. A bun? It looks like a roll. <laughs> Mom, it's a bun. Just read it. Read it? Uh, open it up. I think it says something. What? There's paper in the roll? <laughs> Hi, Grandma. Why is there a roll in the oven that says, Hi, Grandma? <laughs> it's a bun. <laughs> a bun? What's going on? Why is there a bun in the oven? Then... She gets it. She starts to cry. You're pregnant? I'm so confused. Really? You're pregnant? Finally. What took you so long? Wait. How does that work? You're pregnant? We used a donor. Seven months later, it's time. It's been four days of labor. Four days of castor oil smoothies, homeopathic remedies, nipple stimulation in a room full of people. This baby is slow coming. I'm pushing now. One of the Susans, the midwives, says she can see the baby's head. I can touch her hair. 
I see it in a mirror, a black mess of the silkiest thread. But she doesn't come down. After more hours of pushing and exhaustion, they tell me, now is a good time to transfer to the hospital. I think, gosh, their transfer rate is like 1%. I'm going to ruin their statistics. <laughs> and oh, why me? I've done everything right. I didn't eat sugar or chocolate for nine months. I exercised regularly, did hypnobirthing, and it took my mom only four hours to give birth. All my mom told me was, giving birth wasn't so hard. It felt like period cramp. That's it. Not so bad. She leaves out the part that she had general anesthesia and was out for the entire experience. <laughs> I don't want a hospital birth with their Lysol sprayed bat birthing tub and the sticky floors. And yet, I know I will have one. So I change gears in my head. I know it's the right thing to do. They ask, whose car do you want to ride in? Well... Cameron never finished reading Ina May's How to Deliver Your Own Baby, so I'm not going with him. I'm going with Mary the doula. She's more grounding than dirt. We get to the ER. A midwife on call tells me to consider a C-section. She's so gentle and really puts the idea out as an option, even though later I realize it was not an option. It's been too long and my blood pressure is rising. It's 8.30 p.m. I say, okay, if I choose this, when would it happen? She says I'd have a baby within the next 30 minutes. Whoa. The baby's heartbeat is doing weird things. When I contract, her heart stops. We hold our breath each time till we hear it thumping again. Mary Riley comes in, hears this, and goes into high gear and runs out of the room yelling, get a doctor, fast! And then I'm in the ER, feeling numb from the waist down. I ask the doctor to tell me when she starts cutting, because sometimes at the dentist, it takes a lot of Novocaine to numb my tooth. And she says she's almost finished. She says, send someone out for preemie clothes, because this is a small one. 8.54 p.m., she mews. Rising up from my belly, all wet, bloody, and beautiful. Legs and arms splayed like a falling cat. They bring her right to my face, and I speak to her secret words of motherly love. They take her to go clean her up. Cameron, do not let her out of your sight. No eye drops. Yes, vitamin K. Go, go! Hold her hand. I am bossy, even strapped to a table immobile. I've already surrendered to every unexpected twist and turn of this birthing experience. I at least want to get my way here. Back in my hospital bed, a nurse puts the red seizure box by my head. What's this? I ask. Your blood pressure is really high. If you have a seizure, we will need this box. I'm going to have a seizure? They put me on magnesium sulfate, IV. 
I lose attachment to consciousness. I am under a truck, or under 8,000 trucks of heavy. I'm dying. As surely as I know anything in this world, I know I am not walking out of this hospital. My baby will be fine and will go home with Cameron, but not with me. I am not scared. I am not scared. I noticed this. I am sad. I will miss them. I love her. And I know this is what will happen. It's very dark where I am. Floaty, calm, black. I see a tunnel of white light in the black, for real. And I'm in the middle of the tunnel. I don't know which way to go. Ahead of me is calm and bright and dark. And behind me, someone is calling to me, nagging at me. On a whim of a decision, that person grabs my attention and up I go, back somewhere with lines and edges. Elise, the voice says, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what he is saying. It's too much noise and it's so bombarding me with sound. I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. It's Cameron, of course. He brings me back from somewhere vastly different from where I was going. I've always been able to trust my instincts, but now I'm not so sure. My instincts told me I was dying, and I was so sure I was. But now I'm so confused that I was wrong. If I was wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? I think not dying, despite the intense instinct that I was, and then living, is the birth of my anxiety. It shakes my confidence about knowing anything deeply ever again. And yet, in the end, all of this giving birth experience was just right. I mean, everything happened in the exact way it needed to, so that baby and mom came out alive. Every step of it was beshert. Yiddish, for meant to be. That's my daughter's name, Beshert. She happened in a meant-to-be way, and she was born. If it didn't happen that way, someone would have died, or two someones. If I hadn't surrendered at every intersection of choice and will, it wouldn't have ended well. I gave up will. I was adaptable, and she was born. Rising up from my belly, Mayrav, her middle name, Hebrew, 
for to rise up or inspire. I remind myself of this the next time we drive to Rhinebeck. We caught up with Elise recently, and here's what she had to say about sharing her story. I think what helping to package Bashert's story has done for me is that subsequently I was able to process it in therapy. I, and that was really helpful. So I, could, I can drive over the bridge without thinking about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Special thanks to Elise for sharing her story. Stay tuned for our next episode when we hear from Rita, who beautifully illustrates how systemic issues can be perceived as individual character flaws and how the power of love can impact generations. I'm Eva Tenuto. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of Season 3 of the TMI Project podcast, Stories for Choice, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. It was written by me and edited, produced, and mixed by Daisha Clay. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is Blake File. Our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoko. Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. Our workshop leaders are Perla Iora, Capely Kalnick, Haley Downs, Jonathan Gonzalez, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Laurie, Micah, Julie Novak, Blake File, and me, Eva Tenuto. To learn more, support our work, and find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your story visit tmiproject.org slash podcast.